Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. At Cato, we believe that history is the repository of all lessons, and to ignore history is to doom yourself to repeat it. At the 2023 conference in San Diego, we asked the infamous SAS team leader, Rusty No Gloves Furman, to debrief the lessons learned from the 1980 Iranian embassy siege. I asked fellow Cato board members, Toby Darby and Josh Wolford, to sit down with Rusty so he could share his wisdom with those who could not see him at the conference. I spent a fair amount of time with Rusty before and during the conference and was very impressed with his humility, his sense of humor, and how our profession shares many of the same struggles he had in his career an ocean away. I highly recommend his book on the six-day hostage taking called Go, Go, Go. The assault planning and training strategy and tactics are described in detail and the personal stories of the gunmen revealed, who they were, where they came from, why they did it, and Saddam Hussein's direct involvement. Rusty shares compelling accounts of each day of the siege from the hostages' point of view, how they dealt with captivity individually and collectively. He also explains the negotiators' tactics, their cool exterior versus their internal turmoil as negotiations reach a crisis point, as well as the planning process, the entry, and everything that happened after. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend and rate it on the platform of your choice. And I would like to take a moment to thank Cato Gold Sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. I would like to thank Aardvark Tactical for their relentless support for Cato for many years. While they may be famous for their excellent customer service, Project 7 Armor Platform, and Sajin and low-key tactical robots, Aardvark works with teams to deliver custom integrated purpose-built solutions that are designed to protect tactical operators. They find develop, and manufacture purpose-built products that enhance tactical operator safety. Check them out at aardvarktactical.com. Thank you to Battleboard, a company whose origins were founded by a Marine who was looking for a flexible, durable, and portable map tracking system to coordinate operations on the ground in Afghanistan. Several evolutions later, Battleboard has emerged as an industry leader for those coordinating small and large-scale operations in the field. Veteran-owned and made in America, start your next mission fully prepared with Battleboard. Check them out at battleboard.us. I'd like to thank a long-standing supporter of Cato and our chemical agent program. Founded in 1981, Combined Systems Incorporated is a recognized leader in the design, manufacture, and marketing of security products for the global defense and law enforcement markets. As the premier supplier of less lethal munitions and launching systems, CSI manufactures products for riot control, police tactical teams, corrections officers, and military units. CSI's blue chip customer base includes the U.S. Army, U.S. Marines, U.S. Navy, and the majority of U.S. law enforcement, as well as foreign military and security forces around the world. Check them out at CombinedSystems.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Podcast. We're here today. Myself is Toby Darby, and I'm here with Dr. Josh Wofford. We're sitting with uh, sitting with uh, Rusty Furman, uh, former SAS from uh, uh, who's here at the Cato Conference with it this year, and uh, we have some questions for you, Rusty, and hopefully that uh, you know we can take some of the lessons learned from what you did back in the day and apply them to what we have in our operations today, uh, Doctor Josh. Rusty, can you go ahead and give us a short brief on what the the SAS stands for and what their mission is? The SAS is just the Special Air Service. Um, which I joined in 1977 and stayed there for 15 years, involved in operations and around the world, Northern Ireland, the Falkland Islands, to name a couple, and also um, involved heavily in the Iran Embassy siege in uh, April, May 1980. And just for some background, what was your training prior to the the embassy siege and within the SAS? Well, we have a cycle in the SAS, which is four squadrons within the regiment, and each one of them would do six months on the counterterrorism team, then move on to their next cycle, and then it would go A, B, D, G. That's the squadrons, and after your six months. Um, 
you would just swap over. However, mine, or at the time of the siege, prior to April the um, 30th, 1980, was um, once we took over, a couple of weeks later, the Iranian embassy siege started. And from that day, the 30th of April, we'd only been back in the circuit of the counterterrorism team for a couple of weeks. However, it was a live operation, and that's what we went there to do. So it started. We were already doing the training, but nobody knew how long this siege would last. It actually lasted six days. And the book outlines some of the preparation that the SAS did prior to the siege just for operational purposes with um, equipment and so forth. Can you just outline that, what some the preparation? Well, back then, <laughs> we didn't have the best equipment in the world. We had some good weaponry, you know, the MP5, uh, 9mm high-power Browning, but the rest of the kit and equipment weren't the best, but it was the best at the time. What you see nowadays, I'm in envy, but back then we had to do the job of what we had as a counter-terrorist team, and um, we plodded on with that. And it was only after the siege that the kit and equipment changed because everything we had more or less burnt. We didn't have fireproof anything. So the changes were made after the siege. Okay. And just to give people context, uh, prior to the siege, you had been on the team for three years. And what kind of experience did you have prior to this? Because we know that you ended up being a team leader on the siege. Well, I joined in 1977. I did summer selection. And that took me through to December 1977. Then the six-month cycle started, um, which was you know, the Northern Ireland for six months, and then it'd be training, operations, and so on, with the four squadrons rotating. That was the first two years gone. On the second one round, we were already round to 79, and it was then into the early months of April. It was my second tour on the counterterrorism team, um, having completed the first one, obviously. And it was then that the, when the operation started, after we took over from D Squadron to, to SAS, that things started to happen and the operation became live. And the book takes us through your initial notification. Just take us through your initial notification about the siege and then just the process leading up to the first day, second day, and third day, and so forth. Well, very sketchy because you've got to understand that there was no social media in those days. All you had was a telephone <laughs> and the radio communications. So social media wasn't even in, in the game in them days. So that was good in one way. Um, so the initial call out when it came, that there was an incident at the Iranian embassy, which is 16 Princess Gate, down in Kensington in London. So once we had that, um, it was very much, we were supposed to be going on an exercise that very weekend, which is a bank holiday um, weekend, as they call it in the UK. 30th of April, 5th of May, 5th of May being the bank holiday Monday. So even though we knew where we were going on the exercise, we were fully prepared all the vehicles were loaded with weapons, everything in place as though we were going to go and do a live um, exercise. But then we got sort of midday-ish just before. There was, we used to carry what they call bleepers. And the bleepers have a series of numbers which we know what meant what, four numbers. Um and of course, we were waiting for the call out for an exercise. And then the numbers 9999 came up, which meant operation. It doesn't tell you what it is, but that's what we used to carry. As I say, there were no mobile phones, really. So we got 
the message on a pager. And from then, myself and the rest of the squadron made their way in to Hereford HQ and round to the counter-terrorist um, um, block around there to get, we hoped, to be told what was going on and the first initial briefing of what's going on. And after that initial briefing, what was your mindset as far as what you thought you were dealing with? Or, I mean, what did it, did the, the degree of the incident register or was there a lot of understanding that you still need to go through? No, there was a bit of piss taken, I'll be honest, because everybody thought that they'd made a mistake on the numbers because they're done from the HQ signal side, communication side. And everybody thought, oh, they pressed the wrong button and the nines have come up. Um, an operation was a different set of numbers. But it's quite clear after we've been there a few minutes that we were told it was a live operation in London and it was being treated as a terrorist incident and there was hostages taken, more or less, that would be what you'd expect, I think, in those days. But that's the sort of information we got, which makes your ears break up and go, oh, right, we've got a live operation to deal with rather than exercise. Now, this, this was a municipal police incident first, right? Or a police department issue, not an SAS issue at first. Is that right? Yeah, the... Um, it's a metropolitan police who started the whole operation, but the metropolitan police in those days were not capable of dealing with what may have been a hostage rescue if it was required. So in the background, we've got the message, the Met Police, Metropolitan Police in the UK are dealing with it, and they dealt with it throughout very well. So the SAS were called in, just in case, and in the background, we're given information of what was going on. Then it filters down from there to the guys. And then eventually we have to get to London to get to what we call a holding area, which is close enough to the incident, if possible. And there, all your kit and equipment is centralized or your vehicles are centralized while you wait for the next part of it, um, which is quite, you know, um, what would the next part be? Well, the next part would be we sat at Regent's Park Barracks, London, four and a half miles <clears throat> from the Iranian embassy itself. In London, traffic is too far. So what they tried to do is push to get us as close to where the incident was just in case there was... Um, a call for us to be used because we were only there at the moment supporting the Metropolitan Police. And that stayed the same from the 30th of April to the 5th of May until we finally got the resolution, you know, re resolution call up. And how long are we talking by the time you were notified to being in that holding area in London? We all go into the holding area. Um, so that was day one done, which is 30th of April. 1st of May, um, two teams, red and blue team, still at the holding area, Regis Park. And then it was decided to move one team covertly next door to the Iranian embassy. Now that was 16 Princess Gate. The holding area was 1415 Princess Gate, which was the Royal College of General Practitioners. And the reason they got them there was actually covertly, they were right next door to the incident, but the terrorists didn't know that. My team, blue team, as we were, was still in Regent's Park barracks because we couldn't all move at the same time. So on the 1st of May, um, late that night, the red team were there and then they started putting through um, what they had to have a plan in place if they were to be used within one hour. So then they put a plan in place with the best information, intelligence they had was next to nothing. And they were there waiting 
and on standby in case they would need to be used. And they would never be used, I don't think, and weren't used unless proof of murder took place in UK soil. Okay, so proof, proof of murder, you, you mentioned that a couple times in the debrief today. In order for it to be transitioned from a, a police department issue to an SAS issue, you had to have that proof, is that correct? In those days, yes, because it has to be sanctioned and was sanctioned by the Prime Minister. Once she had proof of murder, okay, we were there, we were trained, we've been training for five days into the sixth day. And once that happened and proof of murder, then the um, the job became an SAS job because the police at the time handed over control to our colonel, Mike, um, and he's gotten to sign a piece of paper saying, just sign it and say that you've handed control to the SAS. That happened. So from that, it was now us being supported by the Metropolitan Police. Now, in the States here, we have a, whenever we have an incident like that, we have a team called a REACT team or a rescue team. Did, was the police department responsible for that at the time? In other words, we haven't had that proof of murder yet. So the first five days before we got to the sixth day, um, who was in charge of that, that rescue team? So all of a sudden it did go dynamic. We didn't have a rescue team. What we had, a team, either the red team or the blue team, or both together, which were responsible for something called the IA, Immediate Action Plan. That is something that's knocked together, okay? And we decided to do 12-hour shifts because we didn't know how long it was going to go on. So let's say the red team had it for 12 hours. Any information, they would update their intelligence. When we came on 12 hours later, they would give us a debrief and say, this is what it is, this is it now. We do 12 hours. Whatever we got, we added to our plan, and it went like that to the end. So, and what we call this, it's a skeleton plan, because you've got no very limited information, intelligence, but you have a plan. And over the days, the negotiators buy your time as best they can. And on the, over the days, you add meat to the skeleton. And when you add meat to the skeleton, your plan becomes much more in-depth, which would hope to give you much more chance of success should you need to be used. That is definite. And I did explain today that that is key. The more intelligence... Um, you've got the more chance of making the better plan, which is there. Remember, the mission was to save the hostages. And the better the plan, I think we'll all agree, the more chance of getting the best result. And that's how we worked in those days. And so basically the planning process is never over is what you're saying. You're just adapting to, as you get more information in, that plan gets updated. You're adapting it to the new information. Yeah, we've got the, you know, you've got your snipers out. They, they can get out there taking pictures of people who appear at the window, shamag, no shamag. Um, when you feed them, you know, there's somebody got to take that. You might just catch a glimpse of somebody. They found the passports of the terrorists um, in, the, in a bed sit in Earl's Court in London. Um, hostages that were released get information from them, what the, whatever information you can get. Because we had seven hostages were released over that period for different reasons. Get some information off them. Eyes and ears on the ground. Listening devices um, by the spooks who were put into place to try and find out what's going on. Anything that's going to help, anything that's going to help our team they disseminate that information and pass it out. And the guys like me and the rest of my team and the other teams, that's all we need to know. And really, I just want to know, if possible, how many, what weapons have got. Is it male and female? What they're dressed in? 
then that's where, it, you know, that's how we did it. And that's how it worked. You get to know when you get the mugshots, uh, you get them up on the wall, one for each terrorist, which came from their passport photos, really, which were left in the hotel, as I say, that's it. Um, <clears throat> and you work off that. You know, and the six days went by really quickly, but day by day, you were getting more information, getting a better plan, making different um, plans for maybe a different type of operation rather than just a house assault, maybe building a cell. Anything like that is all relevant. And that's what we did. We didn't waste any time. So today in, in the your your debrief, um, you mentioned a couple of things. And we talk a lot of tactical science in Cato. And we, we're, we're teaching that lingo to our audience so that it becomes standard in our culture. And you said some things which is exact identical to us. You said momentum breeds momentum. Um, you mentioned initiative a couple of times. And in tactical situations, specifically like hostage situations, there's time competitive and there's time sensitive. Now, for six days, um, and I'm sure there was politics involved with the decision making, what is your viewpoint in regards to, uh, do you think you guys should have been launched a lot earlier? Um, or do you think just with that de-escalation de and possibly getting more intelligence for that in preparation, wh what are your thoughts on that? Now, I, I go along with the, um, at, at the time, you get stunned to, don't you? You get stood to critical negotiation point, maybe. So you're there ready to go, ready to go, ready to go. And then you get stood down, you get deflated, you go, you know, because that goes on quite a few times in the siege. I don't know how many exactly, but those critical points are you still haven't got anybody. There's no proof of murder. There's nothing. So negotiation is working. Max Vernon, who was the head negotiator, a really good friend of mine eventually, he was drawing out everything to make it last as long as he could. And the reason was that they could have surrendered. Hey, we've got the worldwide coverage. We've got that. Um, come out, surrender, go to jail. Um, they didn't want to go to jail. So they carried on, but they got tired. Weak leadership in Salim, who was a leader, very weak. He was useless. And the guy, Faisal, who was second in command, who I met face to face eventually, he was the bully boy, right? He's the one who killed Lavasani, which I found out later. So that went on and it was always going to be, let's negotiate our way out of it. That's the UK, right? Let's negotiate. Proof of murder, as soon as it happened, that's when they passed it across to the SAS. No mucking about. Straight up to us because the police didn't have the capability um, to do the sort of hostage rescue that we were practicing all the time. So why would they try and do it if they're not prepared to do it when they've got us there, been there training all the time? So that's what happened. Then they signed it over to us um, to deal with it. And the final assault, as we call it, was a resolution. And that's because all else failed. And so this took place over six days. And tell us briefly what you guys did over that six-day period and leading up to you be, being assigned team leader and how that changed your mindset and how you thought about the incident. Well, a lot of the guys that we had senior, senior ranks, as we call them, were away in the Middle East training um, nationals, foreign nationals. That's big money to the um, British government to send an SAS training team somewhere. So we, we'd lost quite a few of our senior ranks than me, but there was only Roy who was more senior to me, and he was a staff sergeant. I was a lance corporal, one stripe, three years. But the fact is that as it went on, the training itself had to be um, when it was handed over to me, basically from Roy and the officer, uh, Dave, they handed it over to say, when the assault goes in, 
you will be leading that assault because Roy, he was the main demolitions man at the time. He had to make sure that the demolition stuff, it's just the way it was. So they said, you'll lead the assault if it goes in. And we moved the, um, the guys' names around one, you know, to make the teams. Um, and that's exactly what happened until the very end. And at the, at the end, um, when the assault went in, for the last three days, that was my job. I had all the paperwork given to me, all the notes of, you know, who's in what team and who's doing what. Um, but it didn't make any difference because there's quite a few of us capable of doing the same job as I did because we came at the same time to the SAS. It's just that they handed it over to me. And I said, okay. And then I just quickly briefed the guys. It was no change to plan. I didn't say, right, I'm going to change the plan. It was just a matter of a handover. And that's how it happened until the proof of murder. Well, the proof of murder is what I showed today on the presentation is when we went in the back door as our team, when everybody else entered the building simultaneously to the mission rescue the hostages. That was the mission. Number of ways of doing it, we did it our way. And this, uh, take us briefly through the assault and mainly the confusion of it, how do you push through that and just what went right, what went wrong on it? Yeah, I don't mind admitting stuff went right, stuff went wrong. <clears throat> That's the way it is. We had three plans, um, depending on what was going to come out of it. We never have one plan. We call it what if, you know, what if that's all right? Let's go to that one. What if, what if, what if? So you hope it's going to go right. Um, and as much planning and preparation and rehearsals, it doesn't quite always do that. So we were looking towards getting the final, you know, the final result, which was, as I say, the mission was to rescue the hostages. So the guys have got their own job, but they also know and are flexible and adaptable enough. If things aren't going right, which it did happen, that they have to make it work. If you can't go through something, go around it. You know, if you can't go around it, go over it. You don't just stand there and say to a Sarge, you know, can you, you don't do that. What you do is you take the bull by the horns and you go for it because it's a serious situation. Lives are at stake. And once you go for it, you know, um, momentum, as we've said, breeds momentum. Sometimes that momentum gets broken up a little bit, but if you can get around it and adapt yourself, you get it back again because that's the way it is. But what you don't want is them to get any momentum, right? That's the secret. <clears throat> we know what our guys are capable of. We know what training we do, firing thousands of rounds of nine millimeter in particular in different scenarios. And we always do live firing. Okay, live firing. Yeah, you get to know your mates are. Okay, it's dangerous. So, <clears throat> and that happened. And the guys are prepared. Really, all they're waiting for is a knock on the door to go. That's it. Because, uh, you know, how much more training can you do? Because you know what you're going to do inside out. You just need, if it's going to happen, the go-ahead. That's what we're waiting for. There's a saying that says, uh, luck is the residue of planning and preparation. And it's my understanding is that, um, and you mentioned a couple of things, and that is that uh, in combat, um, no good plan survives first enemy contact. And you mentioned flexibility and adaptability today, which is huge. And Marine Corps says, improvise, overcome, and adapt. I mean, it's, it's like the normal things that, you know, you need to do um, because you can do everything right in these situations and things can still go wrong. I know you had fires in the embassy on the siege. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of confusion. We talk a lot about fog and friction, communication issues, um, command issues. All that seems like it was present in that. But you guys had six days or five days to prepare. And that is by uh, 
developing contingency plans, um, rehearsing. I think you made models of the. Yeah, starts with a starts with a plan, a plan of the building, different floors, different rooms. You get the plan. You try and find the caretaker. We got him. He didn't want to come. We got him and made him take us through the rooms. You get the rooms. Once you're happy with that, you make a model, a model of the rooms. They come apart floor by floor. You can look in and say, yeah, got that. That's where we're going, this bit here. That. And that works. After that, we built, we had built um, the Hessian rooms, Hessian and wood, to simulate the rooms that are on the plan. Once that was done, your teams, when it was your turn to go down for your rehearsals and stuff, would go round that and round it backwards, just in case that door, and they would get to know what they were doing, what room, what floor they were on, what door was likely to open which way. It might sound nothing. But if you walked into that door and pulled it the wrong way, right? Instead of pulling it this way like it is now, banged it the other way, you'd bang it, somebody bang it behind you, and you, you know, things like that. It's a small, fine planning that helps you to overcome. And if you can get, I'm not saying that it's going to happen every time, but wouldn't it be nice to think I've gone through the door the right way instead of <laughs> banging your head on it on the way in, at no. least. You know, there is a bit of fun involved. There's a bit of, you know, afterwards, um, yeah. So speaking of speaking of fun, not to cut you off, but we're on this topic. Um, there's a picture of you making uh, entry into that window with no gloves on. That's mm -hmm. why we call you no gloves. Mm -hmm. um, but you mentioned today that there was a mirror inside, and yeah. I'm speaking out of experience here. Is did you almost shoot your mirror, your reflection, when you saw your reflection? Um, I'm not quite that quick, <laughs> but actually, um, as we went through the library and cleared our rooms from the outside, two guys went one way. Me and my partner went the other way. And then I thought, being clever, I could jump up and look through the window at the stairwell, which was the next bit going up. I jumped up, and all I saw was my own reflection in the mirror. So it's like thinking it was a window, you know, um, but it wasn't. But okay, we just, but it's something you remember for doing. You know, it doesn't happen very often, but it did happen. And then we went down to the door before we made entrance to the next into where the stairwell is um, and the stairwell going up to the first floor. So, yeah. <laughs> there has been SWAT cops um, historically that have shot their own reflection because they saw a guy standing in front of them with the fully automatic rifle thinking that it was an adversary, but it was yeah. their reflection. Yeah, I, it's, I can uh, believe you know, it. one of those things in combat. So. Yeah. I'm sure the listeners and some people might not be familiar with the operation. Just take us to the siege itself from when you guys made entry and, and conducted the rescue. Um, okay. It's hard to talk about everybody, but the idea was that 32 guys would go in from the top of the building through five different floors and the basement. Let's say that's six floors, if you like. My team was responsible for the bottom, uh, which is the ground floor. And the team behind that was the basement, four of them. And the reason behind my team is because there's no entry to the basement from the outside of the building. So they followed us in when we cleared the rooms. Then they went down into the basement to make sure the basement was clear. Go back to the top of the building, um, all simultaneously, by the way. Those guys would enter at the top, and their job would be to clear the top floor and hold it, pronounce it secure. And the stairwell going down to the third floor. The guys that entered on the third floor would do the, exactly the same and the stairwell leading down to the second floor. Therefore, you've got the top two floors done. You've got the basement, our ground floor, which only leaves the second floor. And the second floor was supposed to be where it all happened with the information we had. Sure enough, that is where most of the incidents took place. All the hostages and terrorists were together on the second floor. Um, so they were on the second floor. At the time, apart from the leader, Salim, it was on the first floor on the end of a telephone. So unbeknown, as the guys enter and clear their rooms, respective rooms, 
We've got the leader in the first floor on the telephone. We've got the rest of them up on the second floor, along with all the hostages. Our guys entered the building through windows, through using cave-in ladders and everything to get in there as quickly as they can after the initial explosion, which is the initiation to the um, assault itself. So that happened. So chaos, yes, you got the big bang, okay, which was a distraction charge at the top of the building. All the glass came in. And it was all over the stairwell and everything. Um, but it shocked the terrorists. It shocked everybody in that building. That's where we wanted to gain the initiative and the momentum to follow through on that. That's what happened. So we did that. Um, and it worked. They were coming down the building to do their floors. We were going up the building to do our floors. And then in different rooms, different guys met different terrorists um, with arms and weapons and engaged them. But the mission was to um, rescue the hostages. So at this stage, the hostages are trying to evacuate the building. And we've got guys all over the place in black kit, but there's still six terrorists. So as they went through the different room combat in different rooms. The terrorists were engaged, you know, with weapons and stuff. The hostages were trying to escape, which they did down the stairs, pushing from man to man to man to man, trying to identify who's who on the way down. All very quick. 56 rooms were cleared in 11 minutes, um, pronouncing five terrorists uh, dead. Um, there was 19 hostages left, which actually was secure. You know, the, the, um, we didn't lose any hostages on that final assault. But the fact was, that's what happened. So there were, some of them were taken out on the second floor, the first floor, and the guy that I had, Faisal, on the uh, ground floor, he was the one I found out later that had executed Levasani and tied him to the stairs and shot him. I didn't know that till afterwards, but when I held him and I saw the grenade and shot him, I knew that I had the right guy. Then I found out it was him that executed Lavasani by killing him, shooting him three times while he was strapped to the staircase. Um, so that happened. Um, and then the hostage evacuation all the way down the stairs, out the back door being escorted out by the reserve team onto the grass at the back. Once that was happening, the place was on fire. It had been in smoke. It was glass everywhere, people falling, slipping on the glass on the stairs. They went out through the back, onto the grass. The guys out there separated them, male hostages, female hostages, one terrorist over there, all being taken care of, cuffed, identified, counted, everybody accounted for. Um, so to cut a long story short, that was the hostage um, evacuation. That was all part of the 11 minutes from actually entering the building to um, counting everybody accounted for. So it was 11 minutes and 16 minutes actually to get into position covertly before we put the plan in operation. Did you lose any of that surprise when you guys were moving in covertly? Do you think that they had an, an idea? Because, I mean, you mentioned in your your briefing today was speed, surprise, or speed, aggression, surprise, and control firepower. Yeah. Uh, we use speed, surprise, and diversion. Some use speed, surprise, and violence of action. Um, do you think that you had that that uh, that surprise, the that advantage when you guys were making your approach? Yeah, because we've been there. We were quite comfortable. Yep. We've been next door. Uh, they didn't know we were there. Did you guys use chemical agent on this at all? Um, flashbangs. Flashbangs? Yeah, that's um, that's why we always train in respirators. Okay. We train in that environment all the time. So to us, it's not new. But to somebody who doesn't know, the flashbangs and stuff have got different mixtures. They make screaming noises which frighten people. There's gas um, which fills the air. You know, that makes people cry or spew. Yeah. You know, so 
But for us, we've trained in it and we've seen all the scenarios. So it doesn't bother us really. Um, and we just get on with it. To them, totally new. They don't know what it is. Right. They, you know, so that is part of the surprise, speed, aggression, surprise, and control, firepower. Don't just go in there like, you know, the Russians and shoot everything up. We right. don't do that. We can't do that either. No. And so that's what we do. Do you think that the, looking back at it, because we have these talks right now in regards to shield, using shields when going in. Some officers think it's it's good. Some departments like it because of the, you know, the cover they get from the shields. Some think that it slows them down and it's a hindrance that, you know, it, uh, it prohibits them from shooting accurately because they have a shield. Um, when you're looking, when I was looking at your hoods and seeing, you know, your, your kit, your, your hood, your fire hoods, your gas mask, the full thing. Do you think that was a hindrance in regards to identifying people? I know you probably lost a lot of your, your uh, peripheral vision with that. Um, do you think looking back at it, that you would go in with the hood or without a hood? Well, tomorrow I've been asked to do the presentation and then follow it up with the other two where I mentioned this in depth, what it is and what it does and why we use it. The fact is that how could you do the speed bit when you're carrying these heavy shields and stuff around? How would, you know, you wouldn't get them through the windows to start with to try and help you once you're in that building. We got through the windows with body armor, only just. Not the best body armor in the world, but reasonable at the time. Now, if you're trying to get shields and stuff in there, we'd still be there now. Yeah. So, and uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, it, that's a fact. We trained, if you're gonna go in there, you've still gotta go in there. If you wanna carry baggage in there with you, you gotta pay the penalty. Yeah. And I've seen some of the stuff where I thought, snipers are great because they give you early warning, but the fact is once you get through the building into it, Nobody's any good unless they come to a window. But you need to move from room to room. Look, how are you going to get in there with the shield? How are you going to get in there with the shield? Right. You get through the front door, maybe. But that's only the, the first part of it. You know, once you get around and have to go room to 56 rooms on, on six levels in 11 minutes, couldn't do that with shields. Not at all. Would, if you the were hoods, to do... Sorry, the yeah. hoods and the mask. Yeah, because the hood was actually part of an MBC suit, nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. You cut the hood off, throw the rest of the suit away. Hmm. That's really a seal on top of a balaclava, on top of your mask. It's a seal when you pull the string there, and it makes a seal for your gas mask. So you, it cuts down the chance of you breathing in any of the gas through the, you know, the surround of the gas mask. Got it. So without it, um, it just, it's not a hindrance, but it is very, very awkward, but we trained in it all the time. So we knew the, every day, you know. So when you think about it, as I said today, train in what you're going to do an operation in. Right. And that's what we did. We didn't have the best kit. After that operation, everything changed. You know, the wash-up, uh, debrief, right, what went wrong, what went right, what was the kit and equipment like, what's the weapons, all changed. And that was through reports from different people, different parts of the job, pushing it forward. Um, and what, the, what we did that day... I'm still led to believe it was a benchmark for what goes on today. No doubt. Um, so I'm proud to be part of that. Um, and yeah, we paid a penalty. And the fact is, on the day we won, the, you know, we won. Um, so it does work. And I think the caliber of person as well, that's well trained. I think the caliber, you know, I've done all this training. I've trained people all over the world in bodyguards and everything. <laughs> through interpreters, and you can train people, but they've got to want to learn and be trained. That's the secret. You know, you can train a monkey, can't you? 
Yep. You can train a human being. I was trained, <laughs> and I'm a monkey. But no, seriously, it, it is. It's not difficult. Not difficult at all. But the fact is, you've got to believe in it, and you've got to decide which way you want to go. If you want to go with all this heavy stuff, great. Stop. If you're going to stand behind it all day long, how long are you going to be there? You don't want to get in there. Yeah, there's, there's a risk. There's a risk. Um, but you have to weigh up the risk because you're there to do that job. You know, and I've seen a few, a few things happen, but the speed bit, they, they didn't know what happened that day. You know, they thought it was on a plate for them. They thought they were getting a coach to London, to the airport. It all changed in a second. Yep. Speed. And so just to close it out, Rusty, what would be your advice to tactical teams that might face a complex hostage rescue? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, nowadays, I've got to say that the terrorists are better armed. The different cultures, a lot of time, and different um, ethnicities. Ours was Iraqi terrorists. But nowadays, they're better armed. Um, you know, I've got to say that. They're better armed, probably better equipped and financed than we were, than they were, sorry, back in the day. So the, the thing is, every single hostage situation is different. Some only last half an hour. Some of them last for days. Negotiations become very important. But the fact is... Who it is, where it is, and how much information and intelligence you can get quickly and deploy snipers at the first opportunity. That's only me saying this, by the way. Get them their opportunity targets as soon as possible. Eyes and ears, send the pictures, get all. I think that's imperative because I've seen a lot of hostage um, footage um, where they quite happily sit back, groups of um, people, and they watch. But it gives the people inside, it gives them a bit more time to, to think, well, you know, it's a bit of a safe comfort zone at the moment. Yeah. Mine would be, I know it's hard to say these days, but the sooner you can get in there, the better, unless it's a long drawn out one, then use as much time as you've got to get the best plan together. The IA plan, everybody knows, immediate action. That has to be there as soon as you can, half an hour, an hour maybe, you've got it. The guys are briefed. Then you build on that as much time as you've got. Then it depends on what the situation is when you engage and go in to rescue whatever the hostages are. That's my firm belief. Um, and what, what I was brought up with what I've seen and heard, and you know, nobody wants to go in there and just blast everything in in sight and come out half your own guys are dead. You know, you've shot them yourself and stuff. That that's a discipline. That's a discipline, and that discipline in training is what you want from your teams to know. Not only they're not going to shoot you by mistake. <laughs> Don't forget, as I said, and I mean this, we use live bullets on all the killing house drills and everything. No blanks, live training. Yeah, that's when you know who your friends are. So last question, and um, this is going to be like a, a, a quick firing of the answers. Give me three to five real quick topics on um, that you guys looked and said you can do better on your after action review, your after, after action report when you were done with the operation. Uh, and you're sitting around, and you're like, hey, this is what we could have done better. If um, if there's three, if there's five, or I know from my world, it'll probably be 10 or more. Um, but what were the top three you think that uh, you guys identified? Maybe um, the kitten equipment. Kitten equipment? Yeah. To be fair to say, if we had what was available now, it's, it's not going to slow you down. Um, it's a bit more protective. Um the weapons, I was satisfied with the MP5s and stuff, but nowadays there's much better stuff around. So I definitely, you want the best available weapons. 
um, as a as a primary weapon, a backup weapon. I, I saw a mag light on top of your MP5 in the picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's something uh, by a bracket, and you had to screw it to yeah. get it sort of zeroed. It was innovative uh, at the it, time. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's what we had. Right. And the, say, the kit equipment, the weaponry, and sometimes now we had bog-standard Range Rovers as vehicles. No, no fittings apart from a ladder on the roof. Yeah. You guys have got, that would be quite interesting now because that's not going to slow you down or anything else, but it's going to give you a bit more protection should you have to do that. A Range Rover, it's just a bog standard Range Rover. Yep. So yours are armored, you know, um, and if we had that, you'd want to drive through a wall, wouldn't you? Who's going to stop me? You know, but the Range Rover was just an on-the-road vehicle that carried a lot of kit. <laughs> And had better suspension put onto it. That was it. And I'll be showing that if anybody wants to see. I've got a couple of pictures. Um, if anybody wants to see that, that'll be on tomorrow's presentation after the presentation I did today. That's awesome. Rusty, thank you so much for flying all the way out here from the UK, uh, spending time with us today and, and sharing this. And I think we had a couple conversations over the weekend, and that was how important it is to know history, where we came from as a SWAT team and like the inception. And I can tell you from early on as a young SWAT officer, um, your the picture of the Iranian siege was in our range office. And really? it was, yeah. And there was a, one of our sergeants, name's Mario Marchman. Um, we knew all about that because it's important to know history. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, Dr. Josh Wofford, myself, we really appreciate everything you do. I think everybody here at the conference appreciates every, everything you do. Um, again, there's the book, Go, Go, Go. Um, Rusty Furman is the author if you want to read up on that or on uh, on on website. There is a website. Yeah, website is uh, just www.rusty-furman.com. Everything's on there. Wow. Awesome. Is your beeper number on there? Um, we haven't got, <laughs> we haven't got a number these days, oh, but it okay. was, it was, but actually the email address and everything's on there. Everything's on there. Awesome. Rusty, thank you again so much. Well, thanks to Kato. Enjoy myself. Thanks to both of you anyway. And, um, where's the whiskey? It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks guys. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening to the Cato podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 